Chapter 17 of The Witch of Salem. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Witch of Salem by John R. Music. Chapter 17 Out of the Frying Pan into the Fire. Though high the warm red torrent ran, between the flames that lit the sky. Yet for each drop an armed man shall rise to free the land or die. Bryant The liberated prisoners went whithersoever they pleased. Some went to Boston, others to Plymouth, many to New York, New Jersey, and Maryland, while a few returned to England. They were wearied with their experience in the New World, and were content to spend their days in England. Charles Stevens retained a firm hold on his mother and Cora, until it was quite evident that their pursuers had, for the present at least, given up the chase. They went on in the forest until they were joined by five savages left to guard Joel Martin. Martin was no longer with them. Charles did not inquire what had become of him, for he was wholly engrossed in the safety of Cora and his mother. The Indians and the Waters brothers were engaged in a consultation. Charles took no part in the consultation, for he knew nothing to advise. Then the Indians accompanied them for a few miles through the woods. The forest was dark and somber, and they had only the silent stars to light their path, until the tardy moon, rising at a late hour, filled the landscape with silver light. Day dawned, and they were in a wild, picturesque wood, with towering hills and stupendous oaks on every side. Here they halted again for consultation. Oracus, after giving them all the provisions he had with him, took his warriors and stole off into the forest. George Waters and his brother urged the escaped prisoners to eat some dried venison and parched corn and sleep. They did. Indian blankets on the ground afforded them beds, and their only covering was the sky. Charles slept until the afternoon was almost spent, and then he was awakened by the tramp of horses' feet. He started up and found three Indians with five horses saddled and bridled. The Indians belonged to the braves of Oracus, and without a word they dismounted and turned over the horses to the Englishmen, and stole away into the forest. A few moments later, the white people were mounted and riding away through one of the narrow paths known only to the Waters brothers. Charles Stevens' soul was too full for him to give heed to what course they took. His mother and Cora were free, though he had little dreamed that they were escaping from one danger to another. They arrived one night at the home of Mr. Dustin, near Haverhill in Massachusetts. When the frontiersman heard their story, he said, You are welcome, my persecuted friends, to the shelter of my roof, so long as it can afford you any protection. But the war clouds seem to grow darker and more lowering every moment, and I don't know how long my roof will afford protection to anyone. Charles Stevens had been so busy with his own cares and griefs that he had forgotten that a terrible Indian war was raging on the frontier. This war 
was known as King William's War, in which the French joined with the Indians in bringing fire and sword against the inhabitants of New England and New York. The French and English had long been jealous of each other, and a connected account need not be given here of all the disastrous occurrences which led up to the terrible assault on Haverhill, where the fugitives from Salem were stopping. We will mention, as first of the principal attacks during the War of King William, the attack on Schenectady. This was made in pursuance of a plan adopted by Count Frontenac, the governor of Canada, as a means of avenging the English colonies, the treatment of King James, deposed by William and Mary, which had inflamed the resentment of Frontenac's master, Louis the Fourteenth. While New York was torn with internal strife over Leisler, the governor of Canada fitted out three expeditions against the colonies, and in the midst of winter, one was sent against New York. The attack on Schenectady was the fruit of this expedition. It was made by a party consisting of about 200 French and 50 Kanagawa Indians under the command of Mallet and St. Helene in 1689 and 1690. Schenectady was built in the form of an oblong square with a gate at either extremity. The enemy found one of the gates not only opened, but unguarded. Although the town was impaled and might have been protected, there was so little thought of danger that no one deemed it necessary to close the gate. The weather was very cold, and the English did not suppose an attack would be made. It was eleven o'clock and thirty minutes on Saturday night, February 8, 1690, when the enemy entered, divided their party, waylaid every portal, and began the attack with a terrible war-whoop. Mallet attacked the garrison, where the only resistance was made. He soon forced the gate, slew the soldiers, and burned the garrison. One of the French officers was wounded in forcing a house, but St. Helene came to his aid. The house was taken, and all in it were put to the sword. Naught was now to be seen, save massacre and pillage on every side, while the most shocking barbarities were practiced on the unfortunate inhabitants. Sixty-three houses and the church were immediately in a blaze, says a contemporaneous writer. Weak women, in their expiring agonies, saw their infants cast into the flames, or brained before their eyes. Sixty-three persons were murdered, and twenty-seven carried into captivity. A few persons were enabled to escape, but, being without sufficient clothing, some perished in the cold before they reached Albany. About noon next day, the enemy left the desolate place, taking such plunder as they could carry with them and destroying the remainder. It was the intention of Mallet to spare the minister, for he wanted him as his own prisoner. But he was found among the mangled dead, and his papers burned. Two or three houses were spared, while the others were consigned to the flames. Owing to the wretched conditions of the roads and the deep snows, news of the massacre did not reach the great Mohawk Castle, only seventeen miles distant, for two days. On receipt of the terrible news, an armed party set out at once in pursuit of the foe. After a long, tedious march through the snow and forest, 
they came upon their rear, and a furious fight followed, in which about twenty-five of them were killed and wounded. A second party of French and Indians was sent against the delightful settlement of Salmon Falls on the Piscataqua. At Three Rivers, Fontenac had fitted out an expedition of fifty-two men and twenty-five Indians, with Sir Hertel as their leader. In this small band, he had three sons and two nephews. After a long and rugged march, Hertel reached the place on the 27th of March, 1690. His spies having reconnoitered it, he divided his men into three companies, leading the largest himself. Just at dawn of the day the attack was made, the English stoutly resisted, but were unable to withstand the well-directed fire of their assailants. Thirty of the bravest defenders fell. The remainder, amounting to fifty-four, were made prisoners. The English had twenty-seven houses reduced to ashes, and two thousand domestic animals perished in the barns that were burned. The third party, which was fitted out at Quebec by the directions of Fontenac, made an attack upon Casco in Maine. The expedition was commanded by Monsieur de Portneuf. Hurtle, on his return to Canada, met with this expedition, and, joining it with the force under his command, came back to the scene of warfare in which he had been so unhappily successful. As the hostile army marched through the country of the Abenakis, numbers of them joined in. Portneuf, with his forces thus augmented, came into the neighborhood of Casco about the 25th of May, 1690. On the following night, an Englishman who entered the well-laid ambush was captured and killed. This so excited the Indians that they raised the war-whoop. Fifty English soldiers were sent from the fort to ascertain the occasion of the yelling, and were drawn into the ambuscade. A volley from the woods on either side swept them down, and before the remainder could recover from the panic into which they were thrown by the volley, they were assailed with swords, bayonets, and tomahawks, and but four out of the party escaped, and these with severe wounds. The English, seeing now that they must stand a siege, abandoned four garrisons, and all retired into one which was provided with cannon. Before these were abandoned, an attack was made upon one of them, in which the French were repulsed with an Indian killed and a Frenchman wounded. Portneuf now began to doubt his ability to take Casco, fearing the issue, for his commission only ordered him to lay waste the English settlements and not to attempt fortified places. But in this dilemma, Hertel and Hopehood, a celebrated chief of the tribe of Kennebec, arrived. It was now determined to press the siege. In the deserted forts they found all the necessary tools for carrying on the work, and they began a mine within fifty feet of the fort, under a steep bank, which entirely protected them from its guns. The English became discouraged, and on the 28th of May surrendered themselves as prisoners of war. There were seventy men and probably a greater number of women and children, all of whom, except Captain Davis, who commanded the garrison, and three or four others, 
were given up to the Indians, who murdered most of them in their most cruel manner, and, if the accounts be true, Hopehood excelled all other savages in acts of cruelty. These barbarous transactions produced both terror and indignation in New York and New England, and an attempt at a formidable demonstration against the enemy was made. The General Court of Massachusetts sent letters of request to the several executives of the provinces, pursuant to which they convened at New York, May 1st, 1661. As a result of the deliberations, two important measures were adopted. Connecticut sent General Winthrop with troops to march through Albany, there to receive supplies, and be joined by a body of men from New York. The expedition was to proceed up Lake Champlain to destroy Montreal. There was a failure, however, of the supplies, and this project was defeated. Massachusetts sent forth a fleet of 34 sail under William Phipps. He proceeded to Port Royal, took it, reduced Acadia, and thence sailed up the St. Lawrence with the design of capturing Quebec. The troops landed with some difficulty, and the place was boldly summoned to surrender. A proud defiance was returned by Frontenac, as his position at the time happened to be strengthened by the reinforcement from Montreal. Phipps, learning this, and finding also the party of Winthrop, which he had expected at Montreal, failed, gave up the attempt and returned to Boston, with the loss of several vessels and a considerable number of troops, for a part of his fleet was wrecked by a storm. It was in the midst of such trying scenes and devastation on the part of the French and savages that superstition and fanaticism broke loose in Salem and produced a reign of terror far greater than that caused by the savages on the frontier. It was from such scenes to such scenes that Charles Stevens, his mother and friends, fled. Mr. Dustin lived near Haverhill in Massachusetts, and when they appealed to him for shelter and protection, he said, To such as I have you are welcome, but I assure you it is poor. The savage scalping knife may be more dangerous than the fanatic's noose in Salem. They had been at Haverhill but a few weeks, when as Charles and Mr. Henry Waters were one day returning from a hunt, they discovered a man trailing them. It's a white man, Charles remarked. So I perceive. And why should he trail us? Henry Waters asked. I know not, but let us ascertain. They halted at the creek near Haverhill, and were sitting on the banks of the stream when a voice from the rocks above demanded their surrender. Looking up, they found themselves covered with three rifles. Three white men, one of whom they recognized as Mr. Joel Martin, the Virginian, stepped out from behind the rocks and advanced toward them, assuring them that any effort to escape or resist would result in instant death. "'I have you at last, murderer,' cried Martin, seizing Henry Waters. "'No, you mistake,' began Charles, but Henry Waters signed to him to keep quiet. The Waters brothers, as the reader is aware, were twins and looked so much alike that it was difficult to distinguish one from the other. 
Charles was not slow to grasp at the idea of Henry Waters. He would suffer himself to be taken to Virginia in his brother's stead, where he would make his identity known and establish an alibi. But there was danger of the revengeful Martin killing his prisoner before they reached Virginia, and Charles said, Will you promise on your honor as a Virginian not to harm the prisoner until he reaches a court of justice? The Virginian gave his promise, and then the three led Mr. Waters hurriedly away, mounted horses, hastened to Boston, and took a vessel for Virginia. Charles Stevens went to Mr. George Waters and told him what had happened. Mr. Waters' face grew troubled, but he said nothing. That night there was an alarm of savages in the neighborhood, and Charles Stevens and Mr. Waters went with a train band to meet the foe. In a skirmish, Mr. Waters was wounded, and it was thought best for him to go to Boston for medical treatment. I have friends and relatives there, Charles said, and we might be safe. Next day, the four secretly set out for Boston, where they lodged for a while with some relatives of Charles and his mother, who kept their presence a secret. Before concluding this chapter, it is the duty of the author, although stepping aside from the narrative, to relate what befell their brave friends, the Dustins, during the progress of King William's War. The atrocities committed upon the colonists by the French and Indians were equal to any recorded in the annals of barbarous ages. Connected with these were instances of heroic valor on the part of the heroic sufferers, which are not surpassed. On March 15, 1697, the last year of King William's War, an attack was suddenly made on Haverhill by a party of about twenty Indians. It was a rapid but fatal onset and a fitting finale of so dreadful a ten years' war. Eight houses were destroyed, twenty-seven persons killed, and thirteen carried away prisoners. One of these houses, standing in the outskirts of the village and, in fact, over the hill, so as to be almost out of sight of the people in the town, was the home of Mr. Dustin, the house which had afforded shelter to the fugitives from the Salem witchcraft persecution. On that fatal morning, Mr. Dustin had gone to the field to commence his spring work. The season was early, and the plow and shovel had already begun to turn over the rich black soil. The industrious farmer had but just harnessed his horse when the animal began to sniff the air and turning his eyes toward some bushes. Mr. Dustin discovered two painted faces with heads adorned by feathers. At the same moment, a rattling crash of firearms and a terrible war-whoop announced the attack on Haverhill. He unharnessed his horse, seized his gun, which he always kept near at hand, and galloped away like the wind toward the house, pursued by arrows of the Indians. Reaching the house before the Indians, he cried to his family to fly, and he would cover their retreat. Mrs. Neff, take Mrs. Dustin and fly for your lives, he cried. Mrs. Dustin had an infant, but a few days old, and was confined to her bed. Mrs. Neff was her nurse. The husband made an attempt to remove his wife, but it was too late. 
The Indians, like ravenous wolves, were rushing on the house. Mrs. Dustin turned to her husband and said, Go, Thomas, you cannot save me. Go and save the children. Moved by her urgent appeal, he leaped on his horse and, with his gun in his hand, galloped away after the children, seven in number, who were already running down the road. The first thought of the father was to seize one, place it on the horse before him, and escape, but he was unable to select one from the others. All were alike dear to him, and he resolved to defend all or perish in the effort. They had reached a point below the town where the road ran between two hills in a narrow pass. A party of Indians, eleven in number, had seen the children and were running after them. Mr. Dustin spurred his horse between the children and the savage foe, and shouting to his darlings to fly, and bidding the oldest carry the youngest, he drew rein at the pass and cocked his gun. Thomas Dustin was a dead shot, and his rifle was the best made at that day. Facing the savages, he fired and shot the leader dead in his tracks. His followers were appalled at the fate of their brawny chieftain, and for a moment hesitated. Mr. Dustin hesitated not a single instant, but proceeded without a moment's delay to reload his gun. Five of the Indians fired at the resolute father as he rode away after his flying children. "'Run, run, run for your lives!' he shouted. The Indians, with a whoop of vengeance, followed the father. He had four balls in his gun, and, wheeling his horse about, he fired this terrible charge at them. Though none were killed instantly at this shot, three were wounded, two so severely that they died the next day. The Indians abandoned the pursuit of the resolute father, who continued the fight as he retreated, and turned their attention to less dangerous victories, so Mr. Dustin escaped with his children. Mrs. Neff, the nurse in attendance on Mrs. Dustin, heroically resolved to share the fate of her patient, even though she could have escaped. The Indians entered the house, and having made the sick woman rise and sit quietly in the corner of the fireplace, they pillaged the dwelling and set it on fire, taking the occupants out of it. At the approach of night, Mrs. Dustin was forced to march into the wilderness and seek repose on the hard, cold ground. Mrs. Neff attempted to escape with the baby, but was intercepted. The infant had its brains beaten out against a tree, and the body was thrown into the bushes. The captives of Haverhill, when collected, were thirteen miserable, wretched people. That same day, they were marched twelve miles before camping, although it was nearly night before they set out. Succeeding this, for several days they were compelled to keep up with the savage captors, over an extent of country of not less than one hundred and forty or fifty miles. Feeble as she was, it seemed wonderful that Mrs. Dustin should have borne up under the trials and fatigues of the journey, but she did. After this the Indians, according to their custom, divided their prisoners. Mrs. Dustin, Mrs. Neff, and a captive lad from Worcester fell to the share of an Indian family consisting of twelve persons. These now took charge of the captives and treated them with no particular unkindness, save that of forcing them to extend their journey still further 
toward an Indian settlement. One day they told the prisoners that there was one ceremony to which they must submit after their arrival at their destination, and that was running the gauntlet between two files of Indians. This announcement filled Mrs. Dustin and her companions with so much dread that they mutually resolved to make a desperate attempt to escape. Mrs. Hannah Dustin, Mrs. Mary Neff, the nurse, and the lad, Samuel Leonardson, only eleven years of age, were certainly not persons to excite the fear of a dozen sturdy warriors. The Indians believed the lad faithful to them, and never dreamed that the women would have courage enough to attempt to escape, and no strict watch was kept over them. In order to throw the savage captors off their guard, Mrs. Dustin seemed to take well to them, and on the day before the plan of escape was carried out, she ascertained through inquiries made by the lad how to kill a man instantly and how to take off his scalp. Strike him here, the Indian explained, placing his finger on his temple, and take off his scalp so, showing the lad how it was done. With this information, the plot was ripe. Just before dawn of day, when the Indians sleep most profound, Mrs. Dustin softly arose from her bed of earth and touched Mary Neff on the shoulder. A single touch was sufficient to awake her, and she sat up. Next, the lad had to be aroused. Being young and wearied, his slumbers were profound. An Indian lay near asleep. Mrs. Dustin seized his tomahawk, and Mrs. Neff seized another Indian's weapons. The nurse shook Samuel. The lad rose, rubbed his eyes, and went over to where the man lay who had instructed him in the art of killing. He seized his hatchet and held it in his hand ready. At a signal from Mrs. Dustin, three blows fell on three temples, and, with a quiver, three sleepers in life had passed to the sleep of death. Once more the hatchets were raised, and six of the twelve were dead. The little noise they were compelled to make disturbed the slumbers of the others, and the three hatchets, now red with blood, fell on three more. Mrs. Neff, growing nervous and excited, cut her man's head a little too far forward, and he started up with a yell. The blood blinded him, however, and she stabbed him. The yell had roused the others, and a squaw with a child fled to the woods, while the tenth, a young warrior, was assailed by Mrs. Dustin and the lad, and slain ere he was fully awake. Ten of the twelve were dead, and the escaped prisoners, after scuttling all the boats save one to prevent pursuit, started in that down the river, with what provisions they could take from the Indians. They had not gone far when Mrs. Dustin said, We have not scalped the Indians. Why should we? asked Mrs. Neff. When we get home and tell our friends that we slew ten Indians, they will demand some proof of the assertion, and the ten scalps will be proof. Samuel Leonardson, boy-like, was anxious to have the scalps of his foes. So they overruled Mrs. Neff, and turning about, went back to the camp, which was now deserted, save by the ghastly dead, their glassy eyes gazing upward at the skies. This is the way he told me to do it, said Samuel, seizing the tuft of hair on the head of the man who had instructed him in scalping. 
He ran the keen edge of a knife around the skull and, by a quick jerk, pulled off the scalp. Being novices in the art, it took them some time to remove the scalps from the heads of all, but the bloody task was finally accomplished, and putting the scalps in a bag, they once more embarked in the Indian canoe and started down the stream. With strong hearts, the three voyagers went down the Merrimack to their homes, every moment in peril from savages or the elements, and were received as persons risen from the dead. Mrs. Dustin found her husband and children saved. Soon after, she went to Boston, carrying with her a gun and a tomahawk, which she had brought from the wigwam, and her ten trophies, and the General Court of Massachusetts gave these brave sufferers fifty pounds as a reward for their heroism. Ex-Governor Nicholson of Maryland sent a metal tankard to Mrs. Dustin and Mrs. Neff as a token of his admiration. The tankard is now, 1875, in the possession of Mr. Emery Coffin of Newburyport, Massachusetts. During the summer of 1874, 177 years after the event, citizens of Massachusetts and New Hampshire erected on the highest point of Dustin's Island an elegant monument commemorative of the heroic deed. It displays a figure of Mrs. Dustin holding in her right hand, raised in the attitude of striking, a tomahawk and a bunch of scalps in the other. On it are inscribed the names of Hannah Dustin, Mary Neff, and Samuel Leonardson, the English lad. Haverhill was a second time attacked and desolated during King William's War, and other places suffered. The treaty at Ricewick, a village near The Hague in Holland, soon after put an end to the indiscriminate slaughter in Europe and America. At this insignificant little village, a peace was agreed upon between Louis XIV of France and England, Spain and Holland, and the German Empire, which ended a war of more than seven years' duration. Louis was compelled to acknowledge William of Orange to be the sovereign of England. The war cost Great Britain 150 millions of dollars in cash, besides a hundred millions loaned. The latter laid the foundation of England's enormous national debt, which today amounts to five thousand millions of dollars. Prior to the Treaty of Ryswick, a board of trade and plantations was established in England, whose duty it was to have a general oversight of the affairs of the American colonies. It was a permanent commission, the members of which were called Lords of Trade and Plantations. It consisted of seven members with a president, and was always a ready instrument of oppression in the hands of the sovereign, and became a powerful promoter of those discontents in the colonies, which broke out in open rebellion in 1775. The Peace of Ricewick was of short duration. Aspirants for power again tormented the people with the evils of war. King James II died in France, September 1701. He had been shielded by Louis after his flight from his throne to France, and now the French monarch acknowledged James's son, James Francis Edward, known in history as the Pretender, to be the lawful King of England. This act greatly offended the English, because the crown had been settled upon Anne, 
James's second Protestant daughter. Louis, in addition, had offended the English by placing his grandson, Philip of Anjou, on the throne of Spain, so increasing the influence of France among the dynasties of Europe. King William was enraged and was preparing for war when a fall from his horse while hunting caused his death. He was succeeded by Anne, and a war ensued, which lasted almost a dozen years, and is known in history as Queen Anne's War. We have, however, too long dwelt on the general history of the country. It will be essential to our story that we return to the village of Salem, where superstition was reigning, while the chief characters of our story were resting in security at Boston, not daring to go abroad by day. End of chapter 17 Recording by Richard Kilmer, Real Medina, Texas